When we go out and learn from other people, whether we read their books or we follow them on social media or we do their programs or we get mentored or coached by someone, it's not about saying his or her way is the best way, but it's to treat them as if you are going to a buffet and you're taking in all of these different insights, ideas, and lessons. And from that, you are creating your own philosophy. You are creating something that works for you given your obligations, constraints, and lifestyle. In this interview, I'm joined by Simon Alexander Ong. Simon is a life coach, business strategist, and author whose insights have been featured on the BBC, Sky News, and The Guardian. This conversation explores some of the key ideas from Simon's debut book, Energize, including why the best way to change your life is to focus on changing your energy, Simon's advice on how to become a world-class public speaker, the philosophy of Bruce Lee and the importance of having a definite aim in your life. Simon's unique approach for finding and building relationships with mentors. How to use journaling to massively increase the clarity in your life. And more. Learn more about Simon's work at simonalexanderong.com. Okay, Simon, welcome to the show. Now, to get started, I'm aware that before you started university, you learned something called close-up magic, right? Can you tell us a bit about this experience and uh, what you learned from it? So when I was 15, 14, 15 years old, my my brother and I used to enjoy watching close-up magic on television. So we used to watch the TV shows by magicians such as David Blaine, Darren Brown and, and Paul Zenon at the time. And we recorded those TV shows onto VHS. And we would spend time on weekends and after school re-watching those shows, playing, rewinding, playing and rewinding so we could try and work out how they did the magic tricks because we thought it was so cool that they were able to connect with their audience in such a way uh, that got them thinking, how the hell did he just do that trick? The real reason perhaps was because we wanted to do it ourselves and we wanted to showcase our magic to our friends in the playground at school so we could get a little bit more popular amongst our, amongst our friends. And so we worked out, I think it was about, I don't know, 60, 70% of the tricks we saw on television. We, we managed to work out how they did it. And so we went to the card shops, we went to the magic shops and we bought our equipment. And then we hit the playground and we started showing people magic. And what was amazing was to see their reactions. And through learning close-up magic, I realized that knowing how to do the trick was the easy part. You know, the secrets to most magic tricks are fairly straightforward. But it was the delivery that really wowed the audience, the person seeing the trick. So knowing how to do something is the easy part, but it's the application and the presentation of that knowledge that really created the magic. And I look back at that experience and realized there was a lot of lessons that I could take from that in applying to the work I get to do today. You know, I wasn't expecting that. That's that's really interesting. I suppose you're you're a coach, so so I, I imagine that the same principles apply here, that the delivery is so, so important and how you show up as a coach is 
much more important than the content of what you're saying. Mm. I think it's for coaching and, and speaking. So if I look at a coaching perspective, it's really how we connect with the person in front of us. You know, you can go to a coaching school or academy and you can learn all the theories and insights and models about coaching. But none of those matter if you can't connect with the person sitting in front of you. Because only when you can connect with the person sitting in front of you, where they feel like there is a level of trust between the two of you, do they feel comfortable sharing what's on their mind. And once you start to see what is in someone's mind, you begin to see their world. You begin to see the reality that they're living in. And that's where we can really help the people sitting in front of us. Now, when I think about speaking, it's the same thing. You might be very knowledgeable about a subject. But again, that doesn't matter if you cannot present it in a way that engages and connects with your audience. You might be very knowledgeable, but if you present in a way that is boring, that creates this experience of death by PowerPoint, then nobody's really going to hear your message and the insights that you want to share with them. What are you've done a lot of speaking engagements. You're just back from LA doing doing one over there. Um what are some of the most important things you've learned about how to, you know, how to speak effectively in public? What's really helped you in that regard? So I think when it comes to speaking effectively in public, whether that is making conversation or delivering a keynote or even speaking to employees, if it's an internal meeting that you are, you are hosting, what makes a good presentation is our ability to tell stories first, our ability to create emotional connection with the audience second, and then the ability for the audience to understand what we're saying. So for the third point, it's really about how we can simplify the ideas that we want the audience to take away. Because if we make it too complex, we're giving too much work for the audience to do in order to get to the core of what we're trying to say. But if we can simplify the message to the point that anybody can receive it and understand it, that allows our message to be spread to a far wider audience. Brilliant. It's sort of like that quote. It's like, if you can't, if you can't explain it simply, you don't really understand it. I'm not sure if that was Feynman that said that or not, but it's along those lines. And whenever I'm writing something, I'm always trying to like put it in the most succinct possible terms. So it's just easy for the person on the other end to grasp it and not have to work for it, you know? Now, you've just wrote this this really interesting book called Energize. And you strike me as a highly intentional person about, you know, uh, how you spend your life and where you direct your energy. So what was your central aim in writing this book? What were the, some of the key things you wanted people to take away from from the experience of reading your book? Sure. So at at the macro level, the message of the book is that you can transform your life and your career when you transform the relationship you have with your energy. Now, when I talk about energy, I see it in four dimensions. You have physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy, and spiritual energy. I start the book all about physical energy because for me, if you don't have good health, you can't achieve much else. You won't have the baseline level of energy required to do even the simplest of things. And if there's anything that we learned through the COVID pandemic, 
It is the fact that you must stop making your health a side hustle and make it a priority. Because to the healthy, they will have many hopes, wishes, and dreams, but to the sick, they have only one. So when I think about physical energy, it is your sleep, it is your movement, and it is your nutrition. If you're not getting sufficient rest, if you're not moving your body on a regular basis, and you are surviving on junk, then how can you expect to have any energy to put into the things that matter most? So physical energy was how I started the book, and then I went on to explore the other areas. So when I think about mental energy, it is cultivating the right mindset. It is our ability to focus and be intentional with how we live each day, week, and month. And then it is our creative energy, something we all have. Most of us end up suppressing that creative energy as we grow older. But imagine what can happen if we can tap back into that creative energy and unleash our greatest ideas on the world. So that is a lot to do with mental energy. Emotional energy is really about the relationship that we have with ourselves and also the relationship we have with others. That is our emotional energy. You might also call that emotional intelligence. Spiritual energy is all about meaning and purpose. You know, one of the things I describe in the book is that when you take a moment to look around society, you will very quickly realize that many are exhausted and drained, not because they are physically doing too much, but often because they are doing too little of the things that bring them joy. And second, they are running someone else's race. And that is why the longest journey that we as humans can make are the inches from our heads to our hearts. Never an easy journey, but the most fulfilling and exciting that you will ever embark on. And that is why when you are clear on what success means to you, you ignite the fire behind one of the greatest sources of energy that there is going. Very interesting. Okay, a couple of things I want to follow up on there. The first is a question about, you know, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. So what does success mean to you? You know, what is your, what is your definition of success? That's the first one. Sure. So my definition of success has evolved, uh, as, as I can imagine it has for many people who have gone through the personal development journey. So when I started out in the world of work, my definition of success was very much about status, how much money I earned, what company I worked for. And, uh, and my possession of certain material goods and the title that I held. Uh, and, and that determined a lot of uh, my feeling of success. But as I've grown older and I've started a family and other things have become more important, success for me now is simply being better than who I was yesterday and having an impact on the lives of other people. As simple as that. Because if I'm having an impact on the lives of other people through all the work that I get to do, and I am better than who I was yesterday, all of that is contributing to a legacy. And that is what success means to me. That's so, that's so powerful. So success is basically being better, being a better person today than you were yesterday and meaningfully impacting the lives of others. That's a very powerful philosophy that can really help you navigate the world I yeah, suppose. Um, and yeah in fact one of the beliefs i have is that our value as humans is determined by how much more we have given to the world 
than we have taken from it. And that's why part of my definition of success is all about the impact I've had on others. Because at the end of the day, when people look back on your life, they're not going to remember those titles or money or company you worked for, or the house you owned or the car you drove. They're going to remember how you influenced the lives of others, how you impacted their story, and what role did you play in them becoming a better version of themselves. And so for me, that's what drives me, to know that through the work I get to do, I can have some part to play in that. Powerful. It reminds me of, I'm interviewing a guy next week. He's called Bernardo Castrop, and he's a philosopher and a scientist, but he speaks a lot about like consciousness, spirituality, and, and these things. And his, a, a phrase he keeps repeating in interviews is just, your life is not about you. Like really wrap your head around that, you know? And like, it's not to say that you negate your yourself or you you sacrifice yourself for anything, but it's just to say, you know, your life is about contribution and living in a world bigger than than your own, you know? And I think in the self-help world and industry, there's, an, there's maybe an excessive focus on the self. So this kind of philosophy can be really helpful, I think, for stepping outside or living in a bigger world, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great thing to reflect on. And it reminds me of a question I asked a client recently. Because as you said, with self-help, a lot of it is focused on us. So we're always thinking about our story. You know, what is our story? How are we going to step into becoming the hero of our own story? Now, that's important because we want to make sure that we are being the hero and we're not on the sidelines. You know, we are the main character of our story. But at the same time, a question that is also powerful to consider is whose stories are you in? Whose stories are you featuring in? because of the influence you're having on their life. Very cool. Very cool. So it's almost like you're not looking at the, the temptation, like we're all at the center of our own universe and we're all walking around, you know, in the center of our own story. It's like, well, if you, you can have a much better effect in the world if you see yourself as playing a helpful role in the stories of others as well. You know, I think that's just a, a better lens for going about your day, you know? Um, you, uh, You've been heavily influenced by Bruce Lee. Can you maybe tell us about Bruce Lee's impact on your your thinking, your philosophy, and your approach to life? I grew up watching lots of Bruce Lee films, and it actually helped me in some way because when I was going to school uh, here in, in the UK, I was part of a minority, so there was only six, seven Chinese students in the entire school. And this was at a time where Bruce Lee films were very popular. So lots of people were fans of watching Bruce Lee for his martial arts. And it protected me because nobody wanted to bully me at school because they assumed, being Chinese, that I knew martial arts. And so Bruce Lee had a great impact on my life as a student because just him doing what he was doing gave everybody the assumption that Chinese people knew martial arts. So it was a, it was a bit of a positive stereotype. But I unlike my other friends, didn't follow Bruce Lee for the martial arts. I mean, his films were great, but for me, it was a lot about his philosophy. I really enjoyed reading his words of wisdom and the philosophy he was espousing in his interviews, in his books, and, uh, and, and in, in his presentations. And so I started studying a lot more about his story and the journey of how he became to be and the impact he had in, in the world through film. 
And there was a story that I share in the book uh, that when I first read, it really inspired me to begin with the end in mind because he was going through a period of his life where he was struggling financially uh, in, in terms of getting good roles in, uh, in Hollywood, uh, but also because he had just become uh, a parent to a second child. But even though it wasn't an easy time and he was facing racism in the film industry, he realized that deep down there was a story inside of him waiting to be told, that he was meant for so much more than he was currently getting. And so he pulled out a seat at his desk and he took a piece of paper, got a pen, and he wrote on this bit of paper, my chief definite aim. And he wrote out exactly what he wanted. He said, I, Bruce Lee, will be the highest paid Oriental superstar in the United States. And in return, I would deliver the most exciting performances in my capacity as an actor. He got even more specific when he said, starting 1970, I will be world famous. And from then until the end of the decade, I will have in my possession $10 million. Now, he didn't just write this down and put it away. He wrote it down folded the bit of paper and kept it in his pocket so he could read it out loud every single day. In essence, what I learned when I came across this story was that he was programming this vision deep into his subconscious and feeling the energetic intensity of this future as if it was happening in the now. And that inspired me because it, it taught me that the more specific I could get about the future that I wanted to manifest, and the more deeper connection I could create with that, the easier the present becomes to make the right choices. So I'm thinking about the choices that will lead to that destination rather than giving into short-term temptations. Amazing, amazing. Okay. And for anybody that wants to maybe explore more about Bruce Lee in more depth or maybe read a book on him, is there any sort of good good starting points you'd recommend to sort of get more into into his story and his philosophy? Sure. I, I mean, the, the great thing about the world we're in today is the internet is a great friend. Uh, so I would just simply type into Google Bruce Lee philosophy and you will find a lot of resources uh, online in video and article and, and book formats. So I would just say start there or if video is your thing, uh, type in Bruce Lee philosophy on YouTube and you'll hear some great interviews uh, that he's done about his work, his martial arts and film. In fact, another great conversation I'll share with you, uh, and, and this will resonate with, with those of you who study or learn martial arts, is that Bruce created his own martial art. Uh, he created a martial art called Jeet Kundo. And during one interview, a reporter asked Bruce, do you believe that the martial art you created is better than the other choices that we have available, karate, taekwondo, jujitsu, uh, and so on. Bruce paused and then he responded in what I thought was a very wise way. He said to the reporter, I do not see Jukundo as better or worse than any other martial art, because for one person, karate might be better, for another person, taekwondo might be better, and for another, judo might be the best option. What he said is that Jeet Kune Do is the best for me. 
And the lesson I took from that interview was that when we go out and learn from other people, whether we read their books or we follow them on social media or we do their programs or we get mentored or coached by someone, it's not about saying his or her way is the best way, but it's to treat them as if you are going to a buffet and you're taking in all of these different insights, ideas, and lessons. And from that, you are creating your own philosophy. You are creating something that works for you, given your obligations, constraints, and lifestyle. So that is the message I took from Bruce's response. He was essentially saying to the reporter, this Jikundo martial art is one that I designed for myself. I looked at the best of all the different martial art options that we could choose, and I took those that resonated most with me to design my own style. He, in essence, was saying all of us can design our own style to understand your philosophy of living and to use that to determine how you make decisions each and every day. That's very wise. Now, another thing you, I also want to say, it's such a shame that that guy died. Like, I think he died like in his early 30s. I can't imagine the impact he would have had if he had been able to live on, on to an old age. But um, you mentioned there that, that you know, learning about Bruce Lee's story and this this time when he sat down and he wrote down his definite aim, this got you thinking seriously about committing to a specific future and everything else as well. You, you do this almost professionally. You help people with this process, I suppose. What works best for you and with your clients for getting clarity on on that definite aim for their future, on figuring out the thing that is going to be their, their contribution to the world? Because that is one of the central questions of a life well lived, you know? Well, the first thing is that if you haven't really explored what your definition of success is or what it is exactly you want, this exercise will be very difficult because you only know what you know. In my case, when I came out of the world of work, uh, the only career I knew about was finance because I started my career in finance. I would socialize with people in finance and that was very much my bubble. So if you ask me at that point, what is it do I want out of life? The only response I could give you is I want to get promoted and I want to become the manager of a financial company. I want to be a senior leader within a financial services company. But it was only when I started to expand my mind and perspective beyond the bubble of finance that I began to understand what I really wanted out of life. And I think this is where the process starts. If we want to get a deeper awareness of what it is we want to work towards and what would be meaningful for ourselves. And that is start getting curious about things in the world and then explore them. You know, one of the exercises I get my clients to do is simply to write down a list of all the things that you are curious about right now. So for me at the time, it was what other career options could I go into? How would I start a business? How could I learn about entrepreneurship? So I just wrote down a list of all of these questions that I had in my head, things that I had been curious about, but I never really took any action uh, to, to explore them. So I wrote all of these things onto a bit of paper, and I spent time each week just researching a little bit more into those areas. And the curiosities led me to buy different magazines and books to read. It led me to attend events uh, here in London and abroad. It uh, it made me reach out to people on social media, listen to podcasts. And just doing those 
which in the grand scheme of things are very small steps, opened my mind to a world of possibility. And as I started to develop my understanding of uh, options that I could take, uh, that there was a lot more things I could explore, then I was able to narrow down what it is I wanted. The thing is, you don't know exactly what it is you want until you begin to explore and to try things. And the more you experiment, the more insights you get as to what it is you want. Very cool. So you sort of, you have to go wide before you can go deep. And curiosity is sort of like a way to connect with that, that life force or whatever within you. Like that's the, that's the connection to it, you know? Mm, curiosity is, uh, is, is, is a superpower that I think we, we all can benefit from listening to more. For sure. What role does journaling play in your life? And I've heard you say something like a cluttered, you can either have a cluttered mind or cluttered books. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about this? So when it comes to journaling, this is a lot to do with uh, mental and emotional energy. Because I, I'm of the belief that you cannot have self-development without self-awareness because you simply can't change what you're not aware of. And one of the best activities that we can do to develop that self-awareness is journaling. And as you said, there's a statement I share in the book, which is you can either have a cluttered mind or cluttered books. And the reason for me why cluttered books are far better is that all a cluttered mind does is create anxiety. It creates anxiety and stress because what happens if you don't download what is in your mind onto paper, you end up thinking about your thinking about your thinking. And you become so paralyzed by scenarios that may or may not happen, of thoughts that could be true or not true. But until you write it down, you won't really give yourself the space to explore your thinking and also to see what the next best step forward is. And so that's why journaling is crucial to understand ourselves and to make sense about what is going on up here. I think the the key word you you said there that really um, brings that point home is is space. Whenever we get things down on paper, we're putting distance between our our sense of self and these things that are on our mind. So we have that we can see them in front of us, and then we we can work on them. Whereas when they're just cluttered up there, it's just it's attached to our sense of self, and it's messy, and it's you know it's a recipe for disaster. So I think there's so much power in it. Now. In the book, one of the chapters I find really interesting was this idea of creating an electric environment. Can you maybe tell us the importance of this and how you've went about creating this in your own life? Well, simply put, the fastest way to make progress in any area of your life is to design an environment around you that makes it impossible not to succeed. This is how important your environment is. So when I use the word in the book, electrify your environment, the reason I use that word electrify is because when your environment challenges you to be better than who you were yesterday, and it inspires you by showing just what is possible in your world and your future, it literally sends a charge of energy for your body. You're electrified through what could be possible because their habits become your normal now. Their standards become yours. You know, there's, there's a great saying I, I said on social media a while ago, which is if you spend time 
around five of your fittest friends, in no time you'll be the sixth. If you spend time around five millionaires, no, in no time you'll be the sixth. And if you spend time around five of the most smartest people you know, in no time you'll be the sixth. That ability to regularly review, optimize, and upgrade your environment is crucial if you want to accelerate towards that vision you're looking to manifest. And when I, when I talk about environment, it's not just who you spend time with. That's the obvious one. You know, who am I spending my time with? But it's also things such as what you read, what you watch, what you listen to, the physical spaces you spend time in. Uh, all of these things influence how you see yourself and what you see possible. This is no joke. Um, but over the summer, I spent the <laughs> summer in British Columbia in Canada. And I was living in this town called Squamish. It's very known for its like it's outdoor sports. And there's a lot of like, there's a lot of uh, hiking, there's a lot of climbing, and there's a lot of running groups, right? So as part of this running group, we'd meet on a Sunday and we'd do a long distance run. And almost everybody in the group had ran ultra marathons. I'd never done it, right? And within, I think, five or six weeks of being part of that group, I had ran an ultra marathon just because it was a default. And I felt like I sort of need to run an ultra just to be part of this group, you know? And it's 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 a real thing, you know? So I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. The thing is, though, like, how do you go about finding these people? You know, how? let's say you had a goal of... I don't know, let's say someone's goal is to write a book or whatever, and they want to put them themselves in an environment around great authors, or whatever. Like how how would you go about approaching that? Maybe maybe that's not the best example because writing a book can be quite a solitary thing, but for other areas, how do you find these groups? Sure. So the great thing is is that all the resources we need are out there. And so I'll use the example you gave me because I can relate a lot to it. Uh, I, I wrote Energize and uh, at the time I wrote it, it was during the COVID pandemic. And I went for a lot of ups and downs in, in terms of writing the book because it was, it, it was a crazy time. You know, nobody knew uh, which direction the world was going when the COVID pandemic uh, locked us all in our homes. And so to keep me inspired and motivated, I... I, I found a few friends that were also at the same stage of writing as me. So they were uh, in the process of writing their own books. They had got a deal with a publisher. And I said, hey, why don't we meet on Zoom together every other week? And then eventually we moved it to every week, but we started off with every other week uh, just to keep ourselves accountable. And so what would happen is that we would jump onto Zoom together. We would mute our sound and we would just have the videos of all of us deep in work mode, writing our books. But just the fact that I could see other people writing their books and at the end of the session, so these sessions would be anything from an hour to two and a half hours, then we would share what we wrote or uh, what did we do in that time that we were watching each other. And that to me is creating the same effect um, as when you go to a gym class. You know, when you go to a gym class and there's a moment halfway through uh, the time where you're thinking about giving up, where you're thinking of turning your running machine off, you look to your left and you look to your right and you see people are still going. People who are fitter than you or, or less fit than you. And then you're just subconsciously motivated to finish the class. So for me, that's where the impact came from by curating this environment of other people who are also writing that would keep me accountable and inspire me to get to the finish line. That's a great example. And for anybody reading the book, I would that would definitely be worth doing. Um, 
mentors have played a big role in your life as well. Can you maybe tell us about maybe one, one or two of those and how someone can go about finding finding the right mentor for them? Sure. So when I when I first started, uh, I, I said to myself, it would be amazing if I could have this person, that person's mentors. But I realized that the only way I could have them as mentors was if I followed them on social media. And so I wanted something more. So when I started and I knew I didn't have the access to some of these people, the first place I began was choosing books written by the people that I, I was inspired by. So I would have the likes of Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy, uh, John Asaraf, uh, Jim Rohn, and so on, all these sort of greats within the personal development world. And then from the business world, you know, books written by the likes of Richard Branson, uh, Jack Welch, and so on. So I would seek their wisdom through their books, and I would use that as my sort of mentorship. And then I would develop it into what I call in the book an MBA, which is a mental board of advisors. So I would close my eyes and meditate, imagining if I was entering a boardroom in my mind, and there were six people, three on my left and three on my right, that I would seek the counsel of. And the makeup of this board would change from time to time and depending on the decisions I wanted to make. And that was my first experience of connecting with mentors from afar. And, and it makes it easy for any of us to do that. So you, you can't then have the excuse of, I don't know this person, so I can't spend time with them or I can't afford to spend time with them. You can get creative at the beginning. Now, over time, as my business developed and uh, as I've built my profile, of course, the mentors I, I work with physically now are people I can access, you know, people I imagined I would never have been able to access before, but I now can. So one of my uh, early mentors in business was a guy called Bob Berg, who co-wrote the book, The Go-Giver. And his impact was profound in, in, in terms of how I went about running my business. So he's all about giving. Uh, he wrote a book called The Go-Giver, where the message is that the secret to success is giving. And so that taught me how important it is to show up each day as a person of value. Uh, another mentor I've had through my journey is Simon Sinek, and, and we've had the chance to speak at a couple of a uh, couple of the same events. He he wrote an endorsement for my book as well, and just the impact that he's had on on my speaking and how I've gone about it, uh, but also how I market the work that I do. Uh, and I've had plenty since. You know, that's just to name a couple. But mentorship and coaching has played a massive role in terms of the action I've taken. Uh, how I've been intentional about what I do and how I connect with other people. Amazing. But say, let's say that Simon Sinek example, like how did you approach building that relationship with him? Like what were the sort of, how did that start? Sure. So the beginning of the relationship was simply watching his YouTube videos and reading his books. And then there was this opportunity where a friend of mine was running a dinner. And she sent me an email and she said, hey, Simon, we've got Simon Sinek coming for dinner next week. And he's going to be signing copies of his new book, Leaders Eat Last, which was his second book that he released. And I said, great, put my name down. I'd love to come for this dinner. Uh, it was held at a members club in London. There were 60, 65 people in attendance. And I went there extra early. I said to the lady at the front who had the the guest list. I said, can I just have a look at the guest list so I can see if any of my friends are joining as well? So I have a look down the guest list and I noticed that 
Simon Sinek and myself were the only guests with Simon as the first name. And I said to myself, that is going to be my icebreaker. So because I was early, I walked to the bar and I saw Simon preparing uh, for his speech because he was going to be delivering a, uh, an after dinner speech. So I introduced myself and I just said to him, hey, Simon, great to meet the only other Simon here this evening. And he said, nice to meet you. And we, we, we strike a conversation only for about 15, 20 minutes because he then has to go and prepare for the speech. Once the speech is done and everybody's eaten dinner, he then signs uh, a copy of people's books uh, before everyone leaves. And after he signs my copy, I say to him, Simon, one day I will be sharing the stage with you. And he simply says to me, I look forward to it. And a couple of years later, uh, in 2019, Simon and I were then invited to speak at the World Business and Executive Coach Summit. And we crossed paths there. And then when I was in New York uh, a year later, uh, we crossed paths again. Uh, and so we had this uh, sort of moment, if you will, where the universe brought us together in various scenarios. And over time, that's how we built the relationship. And so when it came to the, to the book and thinking about who could run an endorsement for, uh, for it, one of the first people that came to my head was Simon Sinek. And so I wrote his team an email and I said to them, hey, if I send Simon an advanced copy of my book, would it be possible to see if he can write an endorsement? And I remember they responded and they said, we'll, we'll put it in front of him, but we can't guarantee uh, a result because he, he rarely endorses any book. And I said, hey, let's just give it a try. And three days later, the team came back and said, yes, Simon remembers you and he would love to write a blurb for your book. <laughs> that's such a good story. It's like, it's a really nice bit of synchronicity as well that that, you know, those multiple meetings happened. Um, so in your, your personal MBA, you've got uh, the three people you had, or you mentioned the book are Bruce Lee, Sarah Blakely and Tim Ferriss. And there's a really cool story about Sarah Blakely and how her her basic approach towards failure was shaped by something that went on at their dinner table. Could you maybe tell us about about that sort of practice and also how people should think about failure um, in terms of you know approaching goals and stuff? Sure. So the story of Sarah Blakely's relationship with, with failure. Uh, was about what happened at the dinner table when she was a teenager. So at the end of each week, her father would sit her down and he would say to Sarah, what did you fail at this week? And if Sarah didn't have anything to share, uh, then her father wouldn't be happy. But if Sarah did have something to share about what she had failed at, her father would high five her. And Sarah didn't really get what her father was trying to teach her because she thought it was good to be top of the class or to make the cheerleading team or to accomplish something that would make her parents proud. So it kind of confused her when she was a teenager as to what her father was trying to teach her. And she said it was only when she started her own business, when she went out into the world of work, that she started to realize what her father was teaching her. And the lesson was that failure was never an outcome. Failure was merely not trying. Her father was trying to instill in her the confidence and courage to continually stretch herself, to not settle for what you're already good at, to not settle for the comfort zone, 
but to constantly stretch yourself so you can achieve your potential. So you can keep on embracing that eternal student mindset. Because when you do that, you're able to adapt to whatever the world throws your way. So that's the story of what Sarah Blakely learned about failure through an experience she had through her teenage years. And what I want to share with the listeners about failure is that a better way to look at failure is to see them as experiments, to see every event uh, or every experience you go through as experiments, things that teach you. Because the, the big mistake we, we are told when we grow up is that you either succeed or you fail. Now, that is true if you are sitting an exam. You know, if you're sitting an exam, you have to achieve a certain score to succeed. Otherwise, if you score below a certain mark, you fail. So for an exam, it's quite clear cut. But when we're talking about life experiences, it's very difficult to truly succeed unless you fail along the way. Because failure is the stepping stones to success. If you are humble enough to seek the lessons in every failure, if you're humble enough to see how you can improve as a person, then what happens is that failure simply becomes fuel for your success. It's fuel to help you come back stronger and to be better than the person that went into that experience failing. You know, if people could just take away one thing from this interview, I think that there's so much value in what you've just shared there. And, you know, with this Sarah Blakely example, what is essentially happening there is her reward system is being rewired so that she's not getting a re an emotional reward from, you know, achieving success. She's getting an emotional reward from trying things that are outside of her current capabilities and comfort zone feeling at them and then she's constantly learning okay if i do this it's a good thing whereas we're all most of us are conditioned to to sort of prioritize the outcome and getting the a or whatever so it like you say it's just it's a great way to sort of exist in a, an eternal state of beginner's mind you know very very powerful um so simon you are an award-winning uh life coach as well and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you, you obviously spend a lot of time uh, asking people powerful questions. Are there any any questions that uh, you find particularly powerful in your coaching practice that you would maybe use on a regular enough basis um, that you find maybe help help people see greater possibilities in their life or help to create a shift in in people? Mm. I would say a couple come to my mind. The first uh, is a question that would hopefully inspire my clients and those listening to take action. And the first question is this. How long will you avoid doing what you are capable of in order to continue with what you are comfortable doing? So that would be the first question. How long will you avoid doing what you are capable of in order to continue with what you are comfortable doing? So that will be the first question. And, and that is used to elicit somebody's urgency to take action. Now, I would use that when somebody would come up with lots of excuses and they'll say, I can't do this because of that. I can't do that because of this. And they're putting up a lot of obstacles 
as an excuse for them taking any action to explore their potential. So that's usually a question I put out to them because it gets them thinking about the fact they are in control of their time. They are in control of the decisions they make, but a question like that could be very powerful and just shifting their mind uh, to, to a different perspective. That would be the first question. The second question would be, if the opinions of other people did not matter, how would you set yourself up in the next three months? So that would be the second question. If the opinions of other people did not matter, how would you set yourself up in the next three months? And the reason I ask that question is because very often, aside from the fears and the doubts we have, the thing that holds us back is being judged. What would my parents think? What would my partner think? What would my friends think? What would my colleagues think? What would, my, what would society think of me? So often it's us trying to, trying to imagine the judgments of others that prevents us from taking action. But if we don't listen to the opinions of others and start to value our own opinion more, then there's a certain level of freedom that comes with that. So that's the second question I would ask. And the third, the third question would be this. We have already won the greatest lottery that there is going, the lottery of life. You are a miracle. The question is, what are you going to do with that winning ticket of yours. I, I like that. So you're sort of, you're coming from this, the sense that life is, you're already in bonus just by being al alive and everything else on top of that is sort of like cherry on top almost. And the second question you, you talk about there, that links with one of Bronnie, Bronnie Ware's um, regrets of the dying as well. I think it's something like one of the people, one of the things people most regret at the end of their life is that they didn't live a life true to themselves, but a life that others were expecting of them to live. So that question can sort of help people maybe avoid that regret at the end at the end of the end of the day. You know, um, you have some really interesting writing exercises in the book as well, Simon. Um, are there any that you would want to share here that you find that you find really uh, impactful? Like you've got maybe one like the letter to your younger self. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out here. Yeah. So, so the one I would say uh, is, is the most impactful, personally speaking, uh, especially if you want to elevate your energetic state immediately, is this three-step exercise. The first step is to write down the name of the first person that comes to your mind now that you can be most grateful for in terms of the influence they've had for you being where you are today. The second step is to write down why. Why did you choose that person? In as much detail as possible. What did he or she do for you that has made you the person you are? What would life be without them? In what ways did they support you? In what ways did they encourage you? Really get deep in the detail here. The third step, and this is where the transformation happens, the third step is to pick up the phone and call that person reading out everything you wrote in step two. Now, if just listening to that third step is making you a little uneasy, a sort of uh, alternative, if you will, is to send the person a voice note. But the key thing here is that it must be a voice note at the minimum. Because if you send a text message or an email or you write a letter, that's great, but the person receiving it has to imagine 
the emotional and energetic state you were in when you wrote it. They, they don't know for sure where that was coming from. But when you send a voice note or even better, when you call the person to read out what you wrote, they feel your emotion and your energy through your voice because voice carries energy. And that's why if you can do it that way, not just a recipient, but you will also reap the benefits. <laughs> Powerful. I'm definitely going to try that that soon. Um, okay. Can you, t can you tell me about uh, Pronoia? So lots of us will have come across the word paranoia. Uh, paranoia is this belief that the world is trying to sabotage me in some way. So if you're working in a company, you might think that your colleague is trying to sabotage your chance for promotion. Or if you're in business, you think that other people are trying to copy your idea or they're, they're trying to screw you over. However, there is, a, there is another word that I introduced in the book called pronoia. And pronoia means the exact opposite to paranoia. Pronoia is this belief that the universe is conspiring in your favor, that life is working for you and not against you, such that every experience and event you go through is serving you in some way. But you have to seek those. You have to seek those events and experiences and the lessons contained within them. Now, I'm not saying if this is true or not. I'm just putting it out there for you to experience what it would be like if you were from today to live life through the lens of pronoia, to always look at the world as if it is working for you. Because when you do, when you do, your experience is going to be so much richer and you're not becoming a victim of circumstance, but you are becoming somebody who is taking responsibility for where you are and where you want to be. And this is because with pranoia comes this understanding that we live in the feeling of our thinking moment to moment to moment. What you bring into your thinking, you bring into your reality. But this is where you have a choice. You have a choice to choose one thought over another at any given moment. When your thoughts are coming from the lens of pranoia, that is when you have this power to bend, shape, and shift reality to one that serves you. Hmm, that's so interesting. Um, so that's a that's a really empowering belief that you know if anybody took on, I think could have a massive uh, positive be benefit in their life. Um, are there any other beliefs that you've consciously adopted in recent years that have have really impacted you on a personal level? I would say the other the other belief that has really impacted me uh, is belief in my my value that that I can bring to the world. Um, so, in the book, I talk about this idea that there are two sales that always occur. The second is selling you to others, and the first is selling you to you. And until you can sell you to you, the second will always remain the challenge. So this belief in myself and the ability to bring value into the lives of others has been a profound one for me because once I believed in myself, it became a lot easier to get others to believe in what I could offer. The fact is, if you don't even believe in yourself, how can others believe in you? So this is where leadership comes in to lead others. It begins with leading yourself. So this belief I had in myself and what was possible, I think drove a lot of the actions I took and also how I showed up in the world.
that's brilliant. Now, for someone that struggles with that, how do they sell themselves on themselves? I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that right, but I think you get the point. Like, how does someone sell themselves <laughs> on, on themselves? You know. So, if you're finding it difficult to sell you to you, the first thing to do is to take small steps of courage. And there's a, there's a reason I use the word courage, because you don't need confidence to begin, you need courage. Once you have the courage to take small steps forward and you've shown yourself that you can do things, what happens is you begin to build your confidence. So courage always comes before confidence. Once you've taken the courage to take a step that perhaps the old you would never have taken, that's how confidence is built because your inner voice would start saying, hey, this wasn't so bad, or what else would be possible? Let's take on the next thing. So if you haven't sold you to you yet, just start by taking one tiny bit of action today that will move you a little bit forward. So we're not talking about two, three, or four things here, just one tiny step. It could be as simple as sending that email that you've been telling yourself you were going to send for the last few months. It could be as simple as picking up the phone and calling that person. Just choose a tiny step that you can take today, take another one tomorrow, another one the next day, and here's what happens. A year from now, that is 365 steps forward. Just imagine where and who you could be, and also the belief you will have in yourself. That's amazing. Um, you give a great quote from, I think her, the, the person's name is Anas Nin in the book, uh, life shrinks or expands in direct direct proportion to one's courage whenever i was listening to the audiobook i wrote that down because i thought that is there's so much wisdom in that you know um and it's so true it's so true because uh, the more courage we have to show up in the world to be bold in our actions what happened is life literally expands life expands because suddenly we become a magnet for opportunity we begin to attract things into our world effortlessly but if your courage is small and you're not really taking much courage to show up and, and put bold action into place, then what happens is how is the universe going to respond to that? The universe responds to the energy that you bring to the people around you. Very cool. Now, you talk a lot in the book about this, the importance of having a vision for your life and visualization. What does your process actually look like You know, if, if you were working with a coaching client like, how would you help them create that vision? And like, how far in the future do you typically, what do you find works best? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? What, what's your sort of uh, time frame on this? Sure. So the exercise I choose to use may differ from client to client, uh, depending on where they are in their journey uh, and, and what exercise I feel can give them the most inspiration and insight. The one that I use in the book uh, is looking ahead five years. Uh, so you know, looking ahead five years and being absolutely clear as to what that looks like, feels like, uh, and who they're interacting with, where they're doing their work, what are they doing? And so I use a five-year time frame. But one exercise I did recently with a client, which I'll, I'll share here because I think it's a great one, it's a fun one as well, is I got them to pick their favorite magazine. Uh, so because this person was in business, uh, we chose Entrepreneur Magazine. And I got this person to imagine him being 75 years old 
an entrepreneur magazine having just put a feature article together about his journey in life, about what he's achieved and what he's accomplished and the impact he's had in the world. And the exercise I got him to do was to write that article for me as if it was written about him and what he's achieved. So it would be in the past tense and the present tense as if this has already been done. And he, he ended up writing four and a half pages worth uh, of, of notes on, on, on this article. And it was amazing because as he wrote it, he got so much clarity and insight as to what mattered most and to what he had to do to make it happen. Wow, that's a great exercise too. Um, you know, you could go back through this conversation and you'd have homework for, for weeks, but like really, really <laughs> impactful stuff, you know. Um, how Like you, you said there about Bruce Lee looking at his sort of statement every day, like how often do you recommend that people return to their vision and check in with it to make sure they're kind of on track? Like how often do you do that for your own? For me, and I think for everyone, ideally daily. Uh, so I have it on my Apple Notes. Uh, I have it on my laptop. Uh, I've got it in my journal, and I've got it in my bedroom. Uh, because the more often you can think about what it is you want, uh, the easier your subconscious becomes to look for it. You make it a lot easier for your subconscious to seek out opportunities and relationships uh, out there when you're in meetings, when you're online, when you're traveling, suddenly your brain is looking out for all these opportunities for you because you're constantly giving it information or you're constantly telling it what it is you want. So for me, it is on a daily basis. It's like if you want to keep clean, you have a shower or bath every day. Now, if you want to keep focused on the vision, you have to remind yourself every day about it. Otherwise, the mind forgets it. You end up thinking about lots of other things that may distract you from what it is you ultimately want. For sure. Now, there's two sort of schools of thought on on this. One says that you shouldn't tell anybody else about your vision because something to do with dopamine and you're saying that you get rewarded every time you do it. So it sort of can reduce motivation. Other people say you should share it because it um, can make you more accountable to it. What are your thoughts on that? Should people share their vision with others? Should they keep it to themselves? What do you think? I can see I can see the arguments for both, uh, but I've found greater benefit with sharing it with others uh, because what I've often said to people is people love to help people, but the thing is people can only help people when they know how to help. So if you need help to make a vision a reality, people can't help you unless they know how you need help. So to give an example, recently I've been talking about one of my ambitions to do work on television or film. And when I was in Los Angeles, I, I shared it with a friend of mine in LA. And he said, hey, you should meet my friend. He does production in Hollywood. You should have a conversation with him, grab coffee together. And next thing I know, I'm talking to a producer who's behind some fantastic TVs and films on, on streaming platforms. Now, that meeting would never have happened unless I shared a little of my vision with him. But because I shared a little bit, he was able to help me in some way. So I found a lot greater benefit by sharing it because then people start thinking about ways to help me. Simon, that's great. Uh, have you spoken to these people? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Suddenly, everybody's becoming my idea generators. Uh, so I found greater benefit by sharing it, but I can also see the arguments for and against it. Very cool. Now, are there any other aspects of your vision that you'd be 
willing to share here for the future? Like, what are you working towards? Like, what's what's the mission? So currently what I'm working towards is the TV and film thing I mentioned to you. Uh, also, I'm, I'm in the process of exploring creating a Simon AI. Uh, that would be really cool to explore so I can create another revenue generator uh, and doing a lot more work in the metaverse because I know that when Apple launches their Vision Pro product, it is going to bring the metaverse far more into the mainstream. And so I want to gear up to create some amazing amazing things for people to experience very cool very cool you, well, you're ahead of the curve there anyway um so simon it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and learning from you i think you've shared so many valuable insights there that if you know if they were applied could really help people transform their lives so thank you very much um are there any thoughts any things you'd like just to for people to leave this conversation with before before we wrap up anything any last words sure the last thing i would say and and this leans into my love of action you know i'm a coach i'm a motivational speaker and for me there's nothing quite like seeing people put things into action so the question i would leave the audience with is what one thing can you put into action based on what you learned from this episode in the next 24 hours. So what one thing can you put into action within the next 24 hours based on what you learn? Because unless you're putting it into action, this is great as, as, as sort of a short-term shot of inspiration and energy, but unless you put it into action, you're not really learning uh, what has been talked about. Brilliant. Well. Um, anybody listening, leave a comment. If, if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment below with the, the thing you're going to be, you're going to take action on and you can get some accountability there. So Simon, absolute pleasure. Um, where can people, where do you recommend people get the book? I definitely recommend picking up. There's, there's, there's some, so, so many valuable insights in there too. And you've got an online course as well, I believe. Um, so where can people find all this information uh, online? Sure. So the easiest way to get all of that, so books, social media links, and the, the audio course is to go to my website, simonalexanderong.com. So you'll see, it, you'll see it all up there. Uh, if you prefer to check out my social media first, then I'm on all the major social media platforms. But the two I use the most are LinkedIn. So you can search Simon Alexander Ong or Instagram. My handle is at Simon Alexander O. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.